Hello and welcome to another episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast that celebrates high growth businesses and the people behind them. Today, we're delighted to have Harry Hugo, co-founder and chief campaign officer at The Go Agency, the world's fastest growing influencer marketing agency. Thanks for coming on, Harry. Thanks, mate. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on, even though it is between Christmas and New Year. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate you taking the time. So, Harry, we always like to start with getting a background on people, what they've done in their career so far. So maybe you could take us right back to the beginning and explain how you started out and then how you got to, to the GOAT agency. Well, it's a, um, we're recording this a day before my 26th birthday, and uh, therefore my career's not been that long. But we first kind of chatted when I was... I don't know, maybe 17, 18, when I started a company called Fresh Press, which was a football or sports blogging network in the height of sports blogging and the WordPress boom of kind of 2011 to 2013. I had one of the largest football or sports blogging networks in the UK. We had up to 60 websites. We had hundreds of writers who were writing articles every single day. And so we built a kind of content machine over the course of a couple of years. We, we didn't raise any money. We just bootstrapped it from my bedroom in Bournemouth. And then when I was 18, I moved up to London to work for a company called Sport Lobster. Uh, they did raise a lot of money. I was one of the first five in that business. And I went in to run, head up the social media team. And yeah, we raised $25 million in two years. We grew from zero to 75 staff in that time. Uh, we had Cristiano Ronaldo as our headline ambassador. We sponsored the NBA, the NFL, um, you name it, we did it. And it was a very, very steep learning curve for an 18-year-old bloke who just loved football. And I got to do everything you could possibly imagine in sport inside two years. Uh, and honestly, I had, I had the best job in the world for, for someone my age and my interest. But the steep learning curve came with uh, a lot of stark realizations that it wasn't as easy as it, as it looked. And, and despite having a lot of money in the bank, it was very, very difficult to make a product work. And effectively, Sport Lobster was trying to be the Facebook for sports fans. And if I'm honest with myself, five, six years later, we, we epically failed in, in doing so. We drove two and a half million users to the platform in two years, but we never really had a product that could compete with the people who we were competing with at the time, which are likes of Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. And it just wasn't quite right. We, we had a great theor, like theoretical piece of the puzzle. Like we want sports fans to have a sports destination to talk about sports. And theoretically, that is great in comparison to what else was out there. But it, it just didn't really come together. And off the back of that, I left after two years alongside the head of marketing, Nick Cook, and the co-founder, Aaron Shepard, uh, to set up the GOAT agency, which is where I spend my time now. And we have grown the business again, bootstrap. We didn't, we didn't put any money in ourselves. We didn't raise any money. And we went three ways. So despite me reporting into Nick and Nick reporting into Aaron in the sport lobster hierarchy, we left GOAT and we, and we went level, 33% each. And yeah, we've, we've grown a business in, in six years to 120 people. We'll uh, generate 30 million in revenue this year and four international offices london new york singapore tel aviv and yeah it's been a very exciting journey we work with the biggest brands in the world the dells the tesco's the amazons the, the exciting stuff and yeah I, I love my job wouldn't change for the world but yeah it's been a relatively short career i kind of managed to fit quite a lot in and i sold my my blogging business fresh press about two years ago so it ran in the background despite me doing all the other stuff ran the background i, I didn't touch it for five years i became kind of chairman i suppose and then we sold that business two years ago Nice. And so what was it that you guys tapped into at Sport Lobster, which then initiated leaving and going on your own with Go Agency? Yeah, I think we're talking about the true infancy of social networks, right? 
Facebook is is probably coming into its sixth year by the time that we're we're talking about sport lobster here. That is really when we're starting to see the hockey stick. We, we've seen the, the the general hockey stick of Facebook as, an, as a single entity, but now you're starting to see all the other big ones. You're starting to see Twitter. You know that was three less than three years old by the time that sport lobster launched. YouTube and all these other platforms are really really starting to hockey stick up. Snapchat didn't exist. Instagram was just being born 2011. So we wanted to transfer as much of the attention away from these social networks onto ours. And that meant getting people talking about our social network on other social networks. And we protracted the largest celebrities or sports stars in the world to do so. The likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, who's the most followed human being on the planet. He had 120 million followers at that point. Gigi Buffon, Giorgio Chiellini in, in Italy, Sergio Bacca and other NBA stars in the US. So that was kind of the, the strategy. And when you spend as much money as we did on, on those sort of superstars, and then you see, I'd pay my friends from the blogging network like 100 quid who, you know, these people have grown to like 50,000, 100,000 followers of just the Arsenal fans followed them on Twitter. And they generate more downloads than Cristiano Ronaldo, despite having 1,200 times less followers. And it was that moment where we were like, yeah, there's some, there's something in this. Like, no, no one's really seeing this movement yet. That there are, a, there's a new wave of celebrity. It's not going to be called celebrity, but there's a new wave of people having the ability to talk about something in a community to make an impact on people's choices or decision making or what we now call influencers. But people or brands was were still spending such huge volumes of their marketing budget on on headline celebrity ambassadors, and especially with them now looking to move that budget from a traditional celebrity ambassadors from a TV spot to utilizing their digital assets because they had huge numbers on there. But actually their digital assets weren't that valuable because they didn't drive a huge amount of engagement. They didn't drive a huge amount of influence on their audience. Whereas a small community of Arsenal fans or Man United fans, or it can really go into anything if it's gardening fans or if it's flowers fans, like it could be literally you could be interested in anything and I guarantee there's a community online that talks about that thing. And that's what we harnessed really from, from a go agency perspective is, okay, well, there's so many of these communities out there of people who are making these communities engage with the topic of conversation they're constantly talking about. How can we utilize that from a brand point of view? Because we were doing it so successfully at Sport Lobster by this time, after I paid that first guy, we did it for like nine months where we spent so much money doing it and scaling it. But what if we had a great product? What if we were promoting Coca-Cola, not Sport Lobster? And what if everybody, when we sent them there, like we knew we could from Sport Lobster, we said two and a half million people, but they all dropped out at the bottom of the leaky bucket because the product wasn't very good. But what if we sent them that two and a half million people to a product that was really good and kept people and then they told other people and then those, those people would be very, very valuable. And that is ultimately what the, uh, the startup model is, right? So how cheap can you drive a new user or, or, or cost per acquisition? And, and that's, that's effectively how we started the business. And we were taking a massive risk, right? Because not many people had seen this yet. And therefore, very few people were trusting of the, this methodology. And I know that sounds mad now. I mean, everyone talks about influence marketing and you know, brands spend multi, multi millions of, of, of dollars with us on a yearly basis for this channel. Back when we started this business, it was a massive investment to put $5,000 into a campaign, not just an individual's pocket, a campaign. 
So we took a massive risk coming out of a very well-backed, VC-backed company where I was 20 and I was getting paid very well for my age. And I left to have no guaranteed salary, no money in the bank, no VC backing, nothing on a whim that we thought that this would be the thing in a few years time and that we could get by between now and then. And it honestly was, it was £5,000, $5,000 deals that, that kind of got us by for, for a few months. So who did you get your first meeting with? Which brand did you get your first meeting with? Well, the beauty of having worked very much in the trenches at Sport Lobster and therefore in the sports industry, you know, it's very difficult to ignore a $25 million backed VC sports business that are spending money on sponsorship. So we got to know everybody in sport, right? We, we met everybody at the NBA that mattered. Uh, we're sitting in with the commissioner's office and uh, the NFL and the Premier League. So it was very easy for us to, to start the business in the sports sphere. And that's kind of what we, what we really, really focused on. We didn't know anything else. You know, I'd, I'd come out of running my own sports business to going to work for a sports business and then knowing all the sports influencers, the sports celebrities, the footballers and then it made total sense for us to carry that on into the sports sphere um, and we did so for six months nine months but brands yahoo were trying to get into sport at that time lots of the, the fancy draft guys the fan jewels etc draft kings were spending money at that point and then just like small brands who are just trying to make their name in the sports space so it could be like football index who have now gone on to do very very well you know we launched that back in 2016 um so yeah, there, there was so many different little brands that we could just, you know, again, again, it's like five, 10,000. Like we're not talking about having to convince people to spend hundreds of thousands. It really wasn't about that. But it, it felt harder to do the 5,000 pound deals it does now to do a million pound deal because it was so, people were so untrustworthy of this channel. And the first battle really, the first couple of years of, of battling away, building this business was to build credibility in the channel itself rather than build credibility in us as a brand. Pre-2019, you can find nothing about GOAT, zero. Yeah, in 2019, we ended up vlogging every single day of our life to change that. But before 2019, our key focus was how can we professionalize the industry itself, build credibility in the industry and the marketing channel? Because we know that if we're the number one agency in the marketing channel, it doesn't matter if we big ourselves up, we need to big the channel up to the point where the channel gets bigger. And then if we're the biggest and the best, then we'll get the majority of the budget. The problem was that at the start, there was a lot of people, a lot of cowboys in the industry trying to just make a quick buck. So they saw the opportunity that really hurt the credibility. But on the whole, there's some good, there's some really good businesses in this space. And as a unit, as a group of agencies or businesses in the influencer space, we are increasing the credibility, increasing the percentage of budget that's being spent on influence as a channel. And that's very exciting for us as a, as a market leader. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to the, the daily vlog in a second, but how has COVID impacted the influencer space with people spending maybe more time online and less time looking at bus adverts? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. Really, there is less choice now for marketers to spend their their budget. And also, if you think of the average age of a marketing decision maker is forty plus in m most cases, fifty plus, and therefore they're going to stick with the traditional means of advertising: bus, tube, outside of home, billboard, TV, radio, etc. And I don't blame them. Right, that it's very difficult to get sacked from your job if you keep doing what you're doing, and you can't avoid the fact that you know people are in these jobs to to keep doing their job and therefore you know taking huge risks on those things is is a big risk for them and their their personal career and also things that they don't understand necessarily uh, and i'm not not kind of blanketing every over 40 year old but not saying they don't understand this they, they do there's plenty of people that we talk to and we have clients of that 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 know this inside out but 
especially when we're coming or we were growing the business, that was a major thing to think. But in COVID now, the key thing for us is making the most of the opportunity. And I think going into uh, 2021, when there's going to be probably further lockdowns or further self-fulfilling prophecy of us coming in and out of these lockdowns and people kind of more focused on the online world, it has massively helped us and it, and it has helped the engagement on platforms. It's helped the diversification of platforms. More people have used Twitch and live streaming platforms over this, this period. So that's been a really interesting move. But I've been very lucky to be a business owner in, a, in an industry that has benefited or profited out of the, the worldwide situation, which I think it was very, it was a very difficult thing to admit in March, April, May of 2020 because of the, obviously the, the world situation. I think it's, you know, still difficult to, to talk about a success amongst such uh, a, a catastrophe. But, you know, I think everybody accepts that with every disaster uh, comes opportunity. And I think that uh, the key for us has been about taking the opportunity as much as much as we can and make sure we look after our staff in, in and amongst the catastrophe that, that kind of is the world around us. So that's also been a major, major focus for us is, is making sure our people feel as protected and as looked after as, as we can whilst the business continues to grow. But we've, we've hired like 30 people in lockdown since March, that's all me. around the world, all around the world. And that, that's also been an amazing positive for us, right? We can hire someone from anywhere. We got rid of all our, all of our uh, real estate offices in May. We don't have an office at all anywhere in the world. We made that decision. We knew this was going to be at least a year, which means that we can now hire completely remotely. We've got people in Minnesota and Ohio and Atlanta and San Francisco, despite never, ever having an office presence there. We've got people in Berlin and Munich and Paris and Marseille. Again, we've never had an office there, but it's very, very helpful for the campaigns we're running. So yeah, there's been a, it's been a huge plethora of opportunities that have opened themselves up because of the situation. And we're very lucky to be an agile, fast growing company to, to make the most of it. That's amazing. What's one thing that you've done in hindsight, you look back on and go, I can't believe we did that. You know, most companies didn't do that, but we took that lead. Well, definitely number one is the office. Making that decision was the number one best decision we've made. And yeah, I think that that's the one thing, you know, from a, from a bottom line point of view, and I'm not hiding from the fact that in March, April, and May, it was very difficult for, for us for as a business, as it was for everybody. But, and mainly because of the uncertainty. No one knew how long it was going to be, what, what the impact was going to be, what clients were going to do, all these different things. So we had to turn to making absolute decisions. We, we're, we're very much three entrepreneurs who like to know facts and work to facts rather than speculation. So we were like, okay, well, our fact that we're going to make up is that this will not be fixed until June 2021. So let's plan our business now for the next 14 months based on that, that, our, that the world is going to be completely screwed until June 21. Now, that's looking pretty shrewd, but it was a completely made up month. We just went, okay, let's, let's go from the summer, 12 months. And that's massively helped, right? It's a, it's a, we spend a million pounds a year on offices. So you can just slot that million pounds straight back into the business. And when you're up against it and you don't know what's happening in the world, that's a very, very useful buffer for us to continue to grow or keep us liquid. And so that was a big decision. I think also things like we bought all of our um, staff, 200 pounds worth of work from home equipment. We bought them all a desk, bought them all a good office chair. We bought them all a second screen. So I think the key thing that people, again, because, because we were preparing for a year, not three months like everybody else was everyone else was preparing for three months and then it will go back to normal again which is what you heard everybody say in like april and we were like well, we don't believe that's going to happen so we're just going to make all the decisions based on june 21 it meant that we could go 
okay, well, why wouldn't we spend 10 grand kitting out our whole staff with uh, work from home stuff for a year? It's like, it's like the most simple decision of all time. But I can understand why people didn't do it in April if they thought, if their absolute was July 2020. Why would you spend 10 grand giving everybody a desk that they're only going to work there for eight weeks? Makes no sense. But for us, it was 50, 58, 59, 60 weeks made absolute sense. So I think the biggest, the biggest number one decision that we made or the biggest number one decision that uh, we try and make all the time is, is dealing absolutes. Now, it's our fault if we make the wrong decision, but we have to work and have to build a parameter that we can build every decision against. And, and in this case, it was time. How long is this going to be a thing? How long are we going to be working from home? And we were going, okay, June 21. Now, I think that's still going to be too short. I think we're going to be looking at sort of Jan 22. But that was a good decision, which meant that we could actually build all of our other decisions based on that number. And that was very, very helpful. And that was something that I think lots of people didn't get right. They took too long to accept the uh, destiny of the world. And that screwed a lot of people's businesses. But it was pie in the sky, right? I'm not, I'm not <laughs> making, making, uh, making hours if we knew exactly what the world was going to happen. And we knew the medical impacts of everything and when the vaccine was going to come out. We had absolutely no idea. We just said, okay, well, let's just build to the worst case scenario. That's going to be next summer and just build everything on that. Uh, and, we, and we were very lucky. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned the, the daily vlog. So I'm sure lots of people have seen it, but you, you vlogged every day through 2019 and it was still happening in 2020. A couple of questions. One is, have you stopped because of remote working? And the second is content marketing is often difficult to measure. How big an impact do you think a daily vlog had on your company and what have you kind of replaced it with? Two good questions. Question one, did we, re, did we stop it because of COVID? I think you know, when you, when you and, and for clarity, like we, we vlogged every single business day for, for 400 days, which is an unbelievable achievement from the team who made, made that happen. And I think that that's, you know, sometimes a lot of the credit is given to myself, Aaron and Nick. And it absolutely wasn't, right? We, we gave four people the free reign to build a documentary every single day about our business. And they did an amazing job. And it's very tiring. Like there's, there's no rest. When you're doing it every day, there is absolutely no rest for the people doing it. And I think when everybody's together in an office and you can just start from one storyline to another and one person to another, and you've got 80 different storylines there right in front of you, it's a lot easier to make a product every single day. We stopped the daily vlog probably in August. So we, we did it for like six months when we were in lockdown and we did a very good job, but it became a bit tired. But it was very difficult to innovate when you're in it every day. It's impossible, right? Because by the time you've had a brainstorm for an hour or two hours about what you should do to make to innovate the product, you've lost like 30% of the filming day. Like everybody doesn't believe that we film everything a day before and then we release it. Like we, every time it was a day before and then we released day before. So if we didn't film, we didn't have anything. So we, we had to take a break to rethink and we called it series one, 400 episode series one. <laughs> um, but we had to take a break just to rethink about what, what it looks like and how it, how it could be better because the product, and I'm very happy to admit it at the end was not, not what we wanted it to be. If you go back and watch episodes sort of one, one sixty to two twenty, I mean, it is, and I'm not going to blow my own trumpet too hard, but it's great content. It's just great. Like I can watch it as a consumer and really, really enjoy the atmosphere of the office and the relationships between the different people in the office. It's great. Well, I can definitely second that. I completely get what you mean there in terms of you could get a news story 
and you could just walk around the office and ask everyone's opinion. Exactly, it. and that's great. It was and so it's easy. Great content, and it's in context of the day and everything like that. Our USP versus everybody else who even tried to do it was that we had so many different people. We had like a, an amazing sample size. Everyone else was trying to do it on like one or two people, like the founders or whatever. Like our key, our key focus was the team on the whole. So it meant that we could just quickly talk, as you said, quickly talk about one thing and we could get 20 different faces talking about it. And it would be from different ages and races and genders. And you just get a very quick understanding about what the world thought about that thing. And that was very, very difficult in lockdown because you could only really get three, three or four people a day. And therefore you could only get people that were close to the cameraman. Uh, it's just so many different logistical issues, especially when you're doing it daily. So we are going to be bringing it back for sure. We won't be doing it daily because I don't think it works when you're remote, but we will be bringing it back two or three times a week and it will be a slightly different product. It will look cool and it'll be a bit more cinematic than it was before when we were kind of like more of a run and gun. But we filled the void between August and December with documentaries and we've really enjoyed making sort of like 20, 20 minutes, half an hour documentaries on specific topics. It's like we, we sent Matt, who became a bit of a, a fan favorite character amongst LinkedIn um, followers and became a bit of our, the face of the brand. And we sent him to go and like investigate different things. So the latest one in lockdown was investigate dating apps. And we, we, we tried to get our social media manager a, a date through niche dating apps. Um, so that was quite interesting. And then uh, we sent him to go and live in a TikTok house for two days. That was fun. We get, uh, got him to try and break into Gymshark headquarters to meet Ben Francis. That was good. Um, so like, we did, like, again, like, that's just a bit, bit of our personality. And I think the key, the key thing for us has always been around how can we drive as much interest in us as a brand as we possibly can. And that kind of comes on to your second question, which is, how much value did it bring? And we've tracked over four million pounds worth of new business directly from the vlog itself. We spent about a quarter of a million pounds on the vlog over the course of the 400 episodes. So a lot, it's a significant investment. And we didn't see any return for six months, zero, zero pounds, where we were probably a hundred grand deep. Um, and we turned off every single other marketing channel from day one of the vlog. And we just went for all on vlog, all on LinkedIn. Like YouTube was the least of our worries. Facebook, least of our worries. We just wanted 5,000 people to watch it on LinkedIn every day. And if we could get that, then that would spread and people would talk about it. And if the product was good, which we believe that we could get it to a place that it was, then people would like us and follow us. And we knew we could quickly become the... Uh, the, rea the LinkedIn reality TV show, which is effectively what we became for a year, which was every day you could watch five minutes of what it was like working in an office with young kids. That, that was it. And people liked the fallings out and the people throwing chewing gum at someone else because they thought they were a dickhead that day. Like those things were funny. And yeah, I'm very proud of the product we created. But yeah, it will definitely be coming back. And who knows when we'll go back into an office properly. But when it does, then I almost certainly believe that it will uh, it will be daily again. And if anyone's listening to this, unsure whether or not to create content and instantly believe that, oh, I don't do anything that exciting during the day, people won't be that interested. Trust me, they are. We, we filmed an office of the same people every day for 400 days. And people loved it. So it can't be that hard. We're not superstars. We're not actors. We're not unbelievably charismatic people. We had so many different personalities and it managed to carry it very, very well. We found a very good cameraman, very good personality behind the camera but just by chance we didn't cast it we hired him on the thursday and he started vlogging on the monday so yeah it's it's definitely worthwhile for, for sure content marketing from a fun engaging point of view very very worthwhile 
Yeah, and then what you said, just said there about no, no obvious return for the first six months. That's where people give up, right? You know, they yeah. do it for six months and they give up. And all those little touch points they've had within those six months, the moment they give up, that, all that investment's lost. But, you know, someone who then watches episode 220, who actually watched episode 70, and they can see the improvement and mm-hmm. see how the company's developed and the story and everything they might then become the buyer and that's that's the key. I think also was very much uh, we need to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And we were telling our brands who were spending hundreds of thousands of pounds with us, oh, you should create more video content. You should do this. You should do this. And then if they looked at what we were doing, it was shit. Like we were just putting out static Instagram posts. And then we were like, okay, well, if we can turn around to Tesco and go, you should daily vlog because they should. Everybody, I believe every brand should build a more human brand than they have currently. And if I turn around to them three years ago and gone, you should daily vlog, they'd, they'd have no chance of believing why they should. Whereas now they listen to us and are thinking about how they can build something. Now, obviously it won't be the same as the product we had in an office with 25 year olds in a marketing agency, but will Tesco look at doing something in that space, maybe because they've got an agency like us who've gone, well, it really, really worked for us. And here are 400 episodes of which there's some rubbish ones. There's some really, really blockbuster ones. And episode 199, if you're going back and watching it on YouTube, is, a, is an absolute blockbuster. Uh, when we're in LA at the KSI fight, that's a fantastic episode. And then you've got some like just the, the, the episodes everyone's scared of making. The just run of the mill, this is what happened today episode. And people love those more than they love the blockbuster episodes. So a very weird balance and everybody thinks it's going to be really boring and ends up being quite good. Yeah. Okay. So let's bring it into something maybe it might be quick for it might end up being a long answer. But if you were to, for influencer marketing purposes, if you were to order Twitch, Snap, Instagram, YouTube, and which one have I missed? Oh, and TikTok. Sorry, I missed TikTok. Okay, fine. I think it's very difficult to rank because I think they all do very different things for different, for different metrics. Okay. Um, but I will try and give you the pros and cons of each one. Okay. YouTube, very expensive, but most loyal audience, most engaged, and they're going to watch the video for the longest and therefore they're going to care. And you can actually build a story properly through a six to 20 minute video um, on what the brand is and what the product is. And therefore you, in terms of the amount of buyers, the amount of loyal buyers and the click to buy ratio will be the highest on, on YouTube. Number one, for sure. But it's expensive and therefore barrier to entry is, is high. Instagram, probably most used for influencer marketing because you've got a lot of different creators and it doesn't take a lot of skill to be a, a, a top creator on Instagram because it's, it's statics and it's aesthetics rather than it's charisma, production, etc. And Instagram stories I've kind of seen as its own little platform. And is very, very, very successful at driving click-throughs and uh, large-scale awareness. Uh, and you should look at, you should expect someone uh, on Instagram to get between seven and eleven percent view through on a story uh, frame from their following on their main feed. Uh, and we do a lot of our campaigns on Instagram. It's very, very successful a way of generating awareness. And an Instagram story is a good way for driving ROI and click-throughs. TikTok most underpriced in terms of the the metrics you can get back. Huge ability to go viral. Huge ability to hijack trends. And I think you know, looking at 2020 and all the different trends that have gone on, you know, everything originates from TikTok uh, and then moves through as we 
we've seen from all the different social networks through the ages, it always starts at the young generation and then it ages up, which TikTok has done very, very well. And I think that it's starting to shake that misnomer that it's only kids that use it because it's not. It's very, very difficult for that to be over a billion users and it for only to be kids. So it sounds really, uh, it, it doesn't sound very insightful for me to go, oh yeah, TikTok's one to watch uh, because it's got a billion users. And think that people aren't spending that much money on TikTok in general as a brand. Uh, so I think from a brand point of view, it's definitely the thing to invest in. I think lots of brands are worried about the brand safety elements of it and how to price things. But I think that will come very much from a scalability point of view in 2021. Twitch was a bit of a known, bit of an underutilized platform in, in 2020, considering the impact it had from a cultural point of view. 2019, uh, you just had a lot of Fortnite gamers. 2020, you had a lot of people doing all sorts of different things, basically to fill time. And not just from a creator point of view, but also from a viewer point of view, you have people just looking to spend an hour doing something. And that might just be watching someone chat. It might be watching someone game could be watching a game show like we saw lots of different innovations on twitch and i think that that's going to be what's what's next for that platform is okay are we going to start to see cookery shows are we going to start to see a qvc style shopping channel like what how, how are people going to actually use live video and how are amazon going to connect the twitch live video with product and the amazon marketplace so that's going to be a really interesting uh, move and as soon as they do i think it will be a massive massive take up from a brand and an influencer point of view if you can sell product directly from twitch like you can't with any other live stream platform right now other than very very uh, small a few, a few creators on facebook so i think twitch is probably the most underutilized opportunity mainly because people are spending hours at a time watching one person and therefore being the deepest level engagement yes the numbers aren't huge Whereas, you know, on a YouTube video, you might get a million views. On Twitch, a successful streamer, a hugely successful streamer, might get seven to 20,000 viewers on the stream. But that's 10, let's say an average of 10,000 people who are significantly invested in that person, uh, enough to spend probably an average of 40 to 40 minutes to 60 minutes watching that person's life happening. So Twitch, definitely something to invest in. And also in terms of creators, they are massively underpricing Twitch from a, from a platform point of view. So definitely something to gain on. And, and Snapchat, yeah, bit of, a, bit of a sleeping giant, really, Snapchat. Best platform we used in 2016 by Country Mile. Like it was so far and away the most successful pre-Instagram stories when everybody went, oh, I don't want to create stories on two different platforms, just create them on Instagram. But we're definitely seeing a rise in Snapchat effectiveness again, as it's kind of found its niche. Still skews young, but it is very effective. And you, you can swipe up, so you can track, can track sales, click-throughs. I think we'll see a bit of a rebirth of Snapchat in 2021. Not to say it's not been successful for the last few years. I think it's just been underutilized from a marketing perspective. And, and it's kind of rekindled this community aspect that it, it lost, really, when it got bombarded by brand marketers in 2016. 17. I think over the last couple of years, it's kind of found its space again. It's found its differential to, to Instagram and it, it's got a real place for, for marketers to go back and, and spoil it again. Yeah, they've all definitely got different pros and cons. So yeah, it's interesting. I like the idea of Twitch moving beyond just gaming, streaming, but moving yeah. in lots of different... I, I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable. Yeah. I mean, like, so eToro, as I'm sure you know very well, they, it's a social trading platform for anyone that doesn't know, and they don't have a video element, but the people who are trading on there are starting to become almost like influencers in the finance sector. So it'd be interesting yeah. to see if people started like tagging a Twitch page that they were actually creating content from and then driving people to add them to watch lists and things like that. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, there's loads of different uses, I think, where people can start to use Twitch as a driver to other channels.
So, okay, if you could have started one other company in the world, which company would that be? From a market cap point of view, probably Tesla right now. I'd quite like to have invented Bitcoin. That seems to be doing quite well right now. I'd like to have been the first person who was divvying up how much Bitcoin there was going to be in the world and go, I'll just keep 50% of it and just see what happens. That would be quite good. What else is exciting? I think Tesla's probably the most exciting, like, exciting business in the world. Just because everybody thinks they're a car company and they're not, they're going to be an everything company. They're just using cars to get to people. But I also, I think from a, a company that not many people know of, but will have a, or has a potential to be a huge impact on the world, Neuralink from Elon Musk is going to be probably the company that I'd like to find, I'd like to be the founder of the most. Right. I think it could genuinely change the world. So um, on that basis, I think I might know the answer to your next question, which is... Elon Musk is going to be the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you could have a working lunch with anyone, who would it be with? I don't know if it would be Elon Musk, to be honest. I think he's quite weird, and I'm not sure I'd get that much out of him in an hour. I think I'd like to spend a few days with him. I don't think I'd get that much out of him in an hour. You wouldn't want to go for a lunch with Zuckerberg. I think that'd be pretty awkward. Bezos just looks a bit robotic as well. I don't know who I'd like to go on lunch with. I honestly, the, my honest answer would be I'd like to go on a lunch more often with my two co-founders because I think that when we spend time together, we come up with really good ideas and we genuinely move the business forward. And sometimes... Uh, when you're running a successful business that's very busy and you're focused so much on the day-to-day, you forget to, to take a step back and focus on what's the f- what the future has to hold and those moments are the, are the most fulfilling. So if I was having a working lunch with anybody, I think it'd be Aaron and Nick. Yeah, nice. And one last question. If you were to give advice to anyone who's thinking about starting a company or maybe more sort of accessibly joining a fast-growing company, what would you say? So when I joined Sport Lobster, which was touted to be a very fast growing company at that point, it was very much me seeing it as a career move rather than a, this is going to be the, my way to make a million pounds as a small equity holder. It was very much, okay, well, if I go in now into a fast moving company, uh, I'm going to learn so much in such a short amount of time that if I was to put that time up against any other company, then I would never learn as much. Just like I would just because you're going to get thrown into the deep end at a startup versus anything else. So I think if you're if you're being offered jobs in, in startups and you're bored of the job you're doing or if you're kind of weighing up a corporate versus a startup, I think I always, always back the startup because even if it's shit and it falls over within a year, you'll learn so much in crisis management and things that you'll just never, ever, 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 ever see in a corporate because someone else will deal with it, that it's so grounding to be in the firing line all the time. And the startup is a very, very good way of doing it. Now it'll be high stress, and I don't necessarily recommend it for a long time for everybody. But if you can do 12 months or two years at a high-growing startup in a, in a senior-ish position, or even at a junior position, you'll learn so much more than if you go to a, a corporate that everyone's heard of that's easier to talk about when you're down the pub. From a founding point of view, I think lots of people say, oh, you should just follow your passions, do what you love, or if you think it's right, you know, all these things. I think my biggest advice would be, it's probably not right for you. Just if we go off the law of average, like or the probability of the amount of people that make a success out of being an entrepreneur or running their own business, like it probably isn't. If you think it is, it probably isn't. Now, you have to continually tell yourself that it probably isn't to the point where you want to rebel against that so much that that's probably the time when it is for you. If you've got 
so much of a, if you continually ask yourself the question, uh, am I the one in a hundred? Am I the one in a hundred thousand that's going to make a success out of this? And you continually have doubts and question yourself. And when other people say, oh, well, have you thought of this? Or what are you going to do when you don't have any money at the end of the month? Like, and that kind of continues to form a doubt in your mind, then it's not for you. Just don't do it. it it's too much stress and it's too risky because not everybody should do this. But if when someone says, oh, well, what happens when you don't have money at the month and you go, I will, or I'll work it out, then's your time. That's when you should do it because your attitudes are absolutely right. And it's all about attitude. And when my mum turned around and went, oh, what are you going to do when you can't pay your rent at the end of the month? It was very much a, well, <laughs> I'll find somewhere else to live or I'll, I'll do that or I'll find a way of making a thousand pounds in a couple of days. You know, I, I just had so much self-belief that this was going to be the right thing that bordered on denial really that it never even came into question for me that this was the right thing to do and i think that there's lots of people who want to do it and i don't blame them it's a, it is very fulfilling to to run your own business and do your own thing but it also comes with so many negatives that if you're caught up in any part of that negative it's not for you and go and be a very very successful person in someone else's business is just as fulfilling without the stress of it being your business and that also might help you get to the point where you remove those doubts to the point where you are ready for for this but that doubt at any point that would be a red flag for me because it's it's tough right it's really really tough and you've done it as well right it's, it's hard yeah well i was hoping you were going to say something like that and i think there's a huge amount of opportunity to go and work for growth businesses and i completely agree the learning curve is so steep that it will be difficult but it will be very rewarding at the end of it thank you so much for coming on there's been some great stuff in there and I wish you continued success in 2021 and another great riding unicorn story. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me and thank you very much for listening. I absolutely love talking to Harry. He's full of energy and so knowledgeable about the influencer marketing space and marketing generally and has great foresight across the startup and tech ecosystem. So it's really great to chat to him. Next week's episode is with Jasper Martins from Pension B. So look out for that one. Thanks for listening.